Would you turn to Genesis 24? I add my word of greeting to those you've already heard in the precious name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, great Abraham's greater son. We began this series the first Sunday in June. Jamie was our first presenter in Genesis 12. And he started out by saying that he thought he could make a case that Abraham was not only the second greatest man in biblical history, but that he was the second greatest man in world history. I think he made a good case. And now we're near the end of the series. Kenan will finish it next week. I took a lot of time in the first service to talk about the way things have been organized. And the, I said something about chapter 23, and uh, I'm not going to say any of that because I didn't have time to talk about Genesis 24. I'm leaving it all, I'm leaving it all to Kenan. And I'm going to say also that the focus of the exposition is governed somewhat by a conversation I had with a Harvest veteran. I've been here less than two years. Our church is almost 10 years old, and I talked to somebody who'd been here since the beginning. I asked a question. I hadn't planned to ask the question. We had almost 4,000 people in the three services at Easter. I think we had over 2,000 people on campus last week, and I asked this this harvest, old-timer, how many people do you think in our services are unsaved? We could talk about that a lot because I was unconsciously unsaved until I was 20 years old. I thought I became a Christian as a child. That was my testimony when I became a pastor of a local church. And I didn't even realize when I was saved until my mid-40s. And we could talk about that. It's kind of a long story. And God documented it and wonderfully confirmed my second conclusion that, no, I didn't get saved until I was 20. I, if somebody asked me that question, I would have said, well, maybe dozens. If someone had answered that question by saying scores, I would have said, well, you know, possibly. I think it's kind of high, though. I'm not going to tell you who said this. If I told you who said it, it would um, have more authority. But he said hundreds. And I was shocked. So because of that conversation and because the text so wonderfully lends itself to the subject of evangelism, which we'll see in just a moment. We're going to have a uh, more of an evangelistic focus because you see, the church is the bride of Christ. You know, there's no verse that says that. It's implied. It's implied from the fact that John the Baptist called Jesus a bridegroom. Jesus called himself a bridegroom. Uh, it's implied in Ephesians 5. It's implied in Revelation 19 through, through 22. Just as nowhere does it say this frontally, Jesus is God. I mean, there are dozens of verses that leave us with that sole implication. He who has seen me has seen the Father. 
I and the Father are one. He's pretty much called God in Hebrews 1.8. Titus 3. The fact that all things were made by him and for him. That's a pretty big hint. But it doesn't just frontally say it like that. So I don't think there's a verse that says the church is the bride of Christ. But there's enough to conclude, but it is. And we're about to study two servants. One servant is the servant of Abraham. The other servant is a young girl called Rebecca who embraced the role of a servant and became a bride out of her humility as a result of her humility. And Abraham sends his servant off to look for a bride for his son. And you know what? That's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're doing here. So if you can, in honor of God and His Word, you stand for the reading. Genesis 24. I'm only going to read, I think, maybe 21 verses. It's a sprawling chapter. I won't read all of it, but I hope to range over most of it. Genesis 24.1. Hear the Word of God. Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, and I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living, but go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household in my native land and who spoke to me and who promised me on oath, saying, uh, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. Then the servant left, taking with him ten of his master's camels, loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Naharaim and made his way to the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time the women go out to draw water. And he prayed, Lord God of my master Abraham, make me successful today. Show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I'm standing beside the spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let your jar down that I may drink. And she says, drink and I'll water your camels also. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. The woman was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever slept with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant came to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too, until they have had enough to drink. 
So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the men watched her closely to learn whether or not the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. The word of God for the people of God, and the people of God said, "Praise be to God." Please be seated. Father, show us what it means, show us why it matters, and show us what we're supposed to do, because we have studied this text this morning. We ask it in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. I'm often very surprised at the way the Holy Spirit allocates verses of Scripture. It's surprising that seemingly insignificant people and comparatively insignificant events would get such disproportionately large space. Now, I say insignificant. Obviously, the Holy Spirit makes that call. I don't make the call. So he shows us what's important by the space he allocates. You notice in the text that I read, it said that the evening was the time when the women came out to draw water. Did you ever notice that in John 4, which is the story of the woman of Samaria, John tells us what time it was. Why did he do that? And did you notice that that woman who came to that well to draw that water did not come in the evening? Did you also notice that in our text, Abraham's servant looked at all the women who were coming out? So two things. Women in those times and those places They don't go to the well at noon. And they don't go to the well alone. But the woman of Samaria went to the well alone at noon. Why? Well, probably because no one would go with her. Probably because she didn't want to be seen. Probably because she was the lowest of the low. The Jews were the rejects of the world. The emperor Claudius kicked them out of Rome. The Samaritans were the rejects of the Jews. The Jewish women were looked down on by uh, the the Samaritan women were looked down on by Samaritan men, and this woman was looked down on by Samaritan women. She was the lowest of the low. Do you know that the longest recorded interview in the Gospels is the interview that Jesus gave that woman? Not with Nicodemus, the sage of the Sanhedrin. Not with Herod, the Roman king. Not with Pilate, the Roman governor. That woman. And and I was surprised that the most space of a dialogue with Abraham was not given to Lot, was not given to Sarah, was not given to Isaac, but was given to his servant. To his servant. And think of all the space that the Holy Spirit allotted to the conversation between the two servants. Between the servant of Abraham and this young girl, Rebecca, who embraced the role of a servant in Genesis 24. 
Economists tell us that the value of something is predicated mainly on three things. Scarcity, utility, and beauty. There's another factor, and that is whatever the market will pay. But Rebecca has all three. But I want to say that one reason that servants are so valuable is because servants are scarce. If you don't think servants are scarce, talk to the people who recruit children's and nursery workers in this church. Servants are scarce. In the first banquet that the Lord presided over, servants were available, and they were available to draw water. It was the wine that was scarce. And the last banquet that the Savior presided over, which we will celebrate in a little while, the wine was plentiful, but the servants were scarce. No one would wash the feet. Jesus provided the wine at the first banquet, though it was not his place to do that. He washed the feet at the last banquet as a servant. He girded himself with a towel, and he drew the water, you see. I wonder how many of us would know about the last invitation in the Bible. What is the last invitation in the Bible? Unsurprisingly, it's found in the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 22. It reads like this, and the Spirit and the Bride, presumably the church, and the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts come, whoever desires. Let him take the water of life freely. It's an invitation to come take the water which has been drawn for sinners. We see the preciousness of the commission that Abraham would give such a high and distinct privilege to this servant that he would be chosen to go find the bride for his only son and heir. Not, the, not his only offspring, but his only, un, his only enfranchised heir. For me to think that I would be allowed to speak to the Lord, for the Lord is his servant, if you only knew me, if you only knew me, when Peter realized who Jesus was, after he drew the great draft of fish in Luke 5, do you remember what he said to him? Don't come near me. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. I'm a man of unclean lips. You know one way I figured out why I wasn't a Christian? How to know I wasn't a Christian during my teen years? It's not the only way. I'm not sure I've ever said this in public. Because I took God's name in vain without remorse.
that's impossible for a regenerate person. That he would get to tell of his great master and his master's son in a foreign country? Me, a missionary? Are you kidding? You have no idea the shock to the people that I grew up with. The absolute shock. So we see the nobility and the preciousness of the mission to be able to speak of the glories of the great king. We see the seriousness of it in, in the words that Abraham uses when he, he talks about the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth. In verse 3, he repeats it in verse 7, this solemn formula. This is a sacred privilege. And it's the highest possible trust. Spurgeon, the greatest preacher in the history of our language. I've read hundreds of his sermons. Hundreds. I'm absolutely convinced that one of the best five he preached on Genesis 24. And he equated the um, the errand of the of Abraham's servant with preaching the gospel. And he talked about those of us who have a privilege, the privilege of bearing this message abroad and the speaking of the greatness of our master and of his son. And he makes it clear that you don't have to stand in a pulpit to preach the gospel. He makes it clear that when we tell our children about Jesus, our sons and daughters, or when we teach a class, we have this same privilege. Listen to him, November 24th, 1888 in London. Ah, dear friends, it is a very small business in the esteem of some to preach the gospel. And yet, if God is with us, ours is greater and higher than the service of angels. In a humble way, you are telling of Jesus to your boys and girls in your classes. And some will despise you as, quote, only Sunday school teachers. But your work has a spiritual weight about it, unknown to enclaves of senators and absence from the councils of emperors. You are working out the destinies of immortal spirits, turning souls from ruin to glory, from sin to holiness, upon what you say, death and hell and worlds unknown are hanging. You see what an exalted thing it is. What a noble thing it is to speak of the glories of our Master and of His Son. You see that the servant counts the cost and weighs the risk in verse 5. Perhaps this woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Maybe it won't work. I'm a pessimist by nature, which is an awful trait. And I often fondle worst-case scenarios. What if it doesn't work? You know, um, he doesn't complain of the risk in terms of distance. You know how far it is from Jerusalem to Baghdad? 546 miles. This was a journey of over 500 miles in places where there weren't roads. 
But there were criminals. You know, if we take a journey, the great danger is from incompetent drivers. When they took journeys, the great danger was from competent criminals. And in the older days, when travel was much more hazardous, they had picturesque names for people that they call highwaymen, highwaymen, or brigands, or marauders. And the danger that the man who was on his way down from Jerusalem to Jericho encountered before the, Samar- uh, the Samaritans showed up to nurse him back to health. And he doesn't talk about the distance. He doesn't talk about the dangers. He, what he's saying is, what if I can't do what you asked me to do? That's the thing that he worries about. And essentially, Abraham, Abraham, in the reference to the angel, said, God will help you. God will bless you. The angel of the Lord, who is, by the way, the pre-incarnate Christ, Kenan told us last week, will accompany you on your journey. Most of you know, especially those of you who grew up in certain kinds of churches, you know what the Great Commission is. You know I know what it is, you know where it is. Matthew 28, 19, it's a theme of this church, this disciple-making church. Go into the world to make disciples of all nations. That's verse 19, that's the Great Commission. Verse 20 is the Great Comfort. I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. The risk is not that we might get hurt preaching the gospel. The risk is that we might go to a place where we cannot say, the Lord is with me. The Lord is with me in this venture. And so, we see this great servant receiving this commission. And we see that between verse 10 Actually, in the midst of verse 10, there's a journey of over 500 miles as he takes his master's goods with him. There are risks, but there are also assets. We've been equipped with the master's arsenal. We studied it a year ago in Ephesians 6. We've been given access to the master's assets. Ten camels worth for him infinitely more for us. And he arrives in the neighborhood he was sent to in verse 11. And in verse 12, he prays. You see the servant's prayer. The first person who ever taught me how to witness, and I'm still learning how to witness, said this to me. He said, never talk to men about God before you talk to God about men. There's that line, that great line from the hymn. All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One come down. And the servant prays. He he sets out a kind of fleece. I don't recommend it. But he's very particular in what he wants God to do. And God does it. And then the young woman shows up. And she draws the water. And she even uh, volunteers to draw the water for the camels. And the servant knows this is it. The Lord has answered my prayer. Something wonderful is about to happen. Now, for the purposes of the way I want to draw this out, I'm going to reverse the order. Two things happen. He shows evidence of his master's greatness. He begins to decant the silver and the gold and the jewelry. And he he gives them he, he gives a first installment to Rebecca, 
uh, between services, I saw an engagement ring on a young girl's finger who's going to get married in January. You saw her sing a while ago. And uh, probably there were some preliminaries before she got that ring. Probably there were some dates. Probably there was some wooing. Probably somebody bought her dinner. Well, it starts out right off the bat. The girl gets the ring immediately before she even knows his name. So, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to re- reverse that order a little bit. He also, the second thing he did was he told her, just as he told the family of his master's greatness and the greatness of his son. Now, here's an amazing thing. He's trying to get her to marry somebody she's never seen. And what do we do when we plead with men and women to receive the promises of Jesus? Well, they've never seen him. That arch fool, indeed one of the greatest fools who ever lived, Richard Dawkins, says there's no evidence of God. Well, when you eliminate the entire visible universe as evidence, uh, he, doesn't lead a, he doesn't leave us much to go on. Do you know that there are 100,000 miles of nerve fiber packed inside your skull? You know there are a trillion times a trillion synapse connections more than there are stars in the Milky Way galaxy? You don't think that's evidence? Think of a man who thinks of himself as brilliant, who believes that the I is randomly evolved, but yet has the capacity to see everything that exists. How could something randomly evolved and accidentally involved perceive everything there is to see? And yet he says, well, we don't see God. We don't see God. I used to pass a place in Moscow all the time called uh, Gagara, Gagari, uh, I can't say it anymore. Gagarin Ploshad, Yuri Gagarin Square, first man in space, April 12, 1961. And the Soviets weren't satisfied with a technological victory over us, and they certainly scored one. But they insisted on a, an ideological victory, a victory of atheism over Christianity and theism. And so they had a they had a, a press conference, and Yuri Gagarin said, you know, I looked out the window of my space capsule, and I didn't see God anywhere. Which prompted C.S. Lewis, writing in the Saturday Evening Post, I wouldn't want to worship a God who could be sneaked up on by a Soviet cosmonaut. <laughs> and which prompted W.A. Criswell, my pastor at First Baptist Dallas, to say, Well, if he'd taken his space helmet off, he would have seen God. (laughs) But we're pleading the greatness of someone who can't be seen with the the visible eye. But let me tell you something. I, I speak for every Christian in here. We have seen His glory. We have beheld the King in His beauty. And He is wonderful. We have seen His works of providence. We have felt His gracious conviction of sin. 
We have known the wondrous assurance of forgiveness when we don't deserve forgiveness. There is a way to plead the merits of Christ, the greatness of our Master and His Son. But I will tell you, it's a poor thing for low servants like me to plead. Occasionally I run into somebody who rejects the goodness of God because of the presence of suffering. And I always say the same thing. I said, let me tell you, I do not for one minute minimize the reality of devastating suffering all over the world. It's far greater than you imagine. But I have to tell you something else. The goodness of God is far greater than my capacity to articulate. Far greater. And the reason for suffering is sin. And the root of sin is unbelief. And I don't blame God for suffering. I blame your unbelief. But you know, we do more than preach and we do more than speak words. We have silver and gold to decant and to show them in their presence. We sometimes fall and wretches that we are are able to exhibit the character of Christ and minister the grace and mercy of Christ in these fallen, sinful bodies. I was ministered to on Friday morning. I, I owe the audience to Matt Mitchell, who happens to be the chaplain of the Germantown Police Department. It was his dreadful assignment to knock on a door Friday morning at 5 a.m. on Johnson Road and to tell a young mother something that no parent ever wants to hear. You, don't, you never want to hear, see a policeman at your door. You never want to get a call at 2 a.m. You know that this can't be good news. So she that morning had learned that her youngest son, handsome, athletic, and godly, had been taken from her suddenly, unexpectedly, savagely, cruelly. And we went over there expecting to minister and to bring her comfort. I can't begin to tell you how she ministered to us. I, I realized immediately I'm in the presence of somebody who has much to teach me about the Lord. The radiance from her countenance, her love for the Lord, her trust, her confidence that she would see her boy again and the way she comforted Matt and me, we had a dreadful assignment. She comforted us in our trepidation at taking up that assignment. Let me tell you, there is evidence that we can show. There is an inexplicable peace. There is an unaccountable confidence. And we bring, we bring this silver and gold. And we show it to the world. And we say, where do you think we got this? 
We didn't earn this. We did not merit this. We received it as a stewardship from our master. We employ it in such a way is to extol the glories of His Son. And you see, before we see, before we get to heaven, we are certain of heavenly, heavenly blessings. We know that that is a place of compensations. Abraham himself answered the cry of a rich man in hell, a man who prayed too late. And he said, Lazarus used to feast on the crumbs under your table. And now he is banqueting here, and, and, and you are there. The hymn writer writes, The hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. We have a foretaste. We have an intimation of heaven. We see it in our changed behavior. We see it in a gift for repentance and faith. We see it in the people we know who have come out of this wretchedness which we have known into the glories and the grace of His marvelous light. John Newton said, John Newton was a slave of slaves. Did you know that? He worked on a slave ship Somehow he became indentured to his captain. And his captain had a slave lover. And his captain gave John Newton to a slave woman. He became a slave of slaves. The man who wrote, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He meant it. He wasn't posturing. It's John Newton who said, uh, I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm not what I was. And I'm not yet what I'm going to be. We see the single-mindedness of uh, Abraham's servant when he shows the jewels and he makes his pleas and he uh, unloads his camels in the courtyard of Rebekah's family. It says in verse 33 that food was set before him to eat. He said, I will not eat until I've told my errand. He was single-minded. Do you know that Lennon loved music? You know that he gave up listening to all music? You know why? Because it distracted him from his single-minded goal of revolution. Are we not shamed by atheists who prize their wretched, secular, anti-theistic dreams more than the children of Zion prize the inheritance we have in Christ, uh, it's, it's my lot uh, not only to talk to bereaved mothers, but to try to speak into broken marriages. I'm working with about eight marriages right now in 
five different countries. And I received one of the most heartbreaking texts from a young girl whose wedding I performed in 1995. And she said, my marriage is over. She said, you know what my husband loves? He doesn't love me. He loves food. He lives for food. He takes photos of food. And I've never once seen him open a Bible. I performed the wedding because the young man convinced me he was a believer. I'm easily deceived. God is not. I will not eat until I've told my errand. I will not eat until I've preached the gospel. And they said to him, speak on, he says, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my servant, my master, greatly. He has become great. There's a psalm. I should have looked up the number. I can't remember. It just it brings me to tears every time I read it. Oh, Lord, Thou art very great. When's the last time you said that to the Lord? When's that the last time you said that to an unbeliever about the Lord? This is the last time I've done that. So what happens is that Rebecca's family, who are really greedy for the wealth behind this invitation, who are fascinated by the jewels and the merchandise which was taken off the backs of the camels, they try to keep the servant there as long as possible. And he resists. And they come to a place where they finally acquiesce and say it can happen, and then the servant says, uh, let's go now. But her brother and mother said, let her stay for a few days. Let her stay for a few days. And he says in verse 56, do not hinder me. Since the Lord prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. No delay, no delay. Let me tell you something. Um, I think it's, it's online. I hope it is. We heard a wonderful message here that last Sunday. I hate to be the one to follow him. But I want to tell you something. Right here, there was a men's luncheon Wednesday. It, it could have been better. Let me tell you why I say that. Kendall was greatly aided by the privilege of preaching the greatest chapter in the Old Testament, Genesis 22. Now, he did a superb job but he had a great text. I'm not sure what his text was Wednesday, but it was great. I mean, it was great. And one of the things he said was this. He quoted John Charles Ryle. Well, one, one quote of his own. He said, it's never too early to start finishing well because you don't know how long you got. It was a 19-year-old in Fort Worth, TCU junior, just starting fall semester, who went into glory late that night. He wasn't expecting that. You know what, remember what Kenan said last Sunday? Bill wasn't expecting to die on January 17th. 
we don't have the promise. You've got the promise of another exhale. That's all. You get the assurance of one exhale. That's all. That's all you can do on your own. The inhale is up to the beneficence of God. His gracious patience with each of us. And one thing Kenan said Wednesday, he was quoting John Charles Ryle, the great Anglican bishop of the 19th century. He died in 1900. An amazing man of God. Ryle said, tomorrow is the devil's day. Tomorrow is always the devil's day. You get one day to worship God, to serve God, to, be obedient, to obey God. That's today, because tomorrow never comes. Once tomorrow gets here, it won't be called tomorrow. It'll be called today. Yesterday's gone. You can't do anything for the Lord tomorrow. Tomorrow's not here. Today's the only day you get. And the servant says, do not hinder me. Do not hinder me. And so they say, well, let's call her and see what she says. And so... Uh, They call her out. They say, let her decide. That's in verse 57. There was a man called Brownlow North. He grew up in a wealthy family. And he was a a rounder. He was a rogue. He was a womanizer. He was a gambler. He was a drunkard. And he came to Christ wonderfully, amazingly. And now now he became came to Christ. He became a pastor in the north of England. And his biography said of Brownlow North, his was a converting ministry. And what he meant by that was that souls, so many souls were converted under Brownlow North's ministry. And he had a singular, he had a a signature sermon like like R.G. Lee had the sermon payday someday. And that signature sermon, which saw the conversion of many souls, was from Genesis 24, verse 58. You know what the name of the sermon was? Will you go with this man? We plead with sinners, receive the invitation of Christ, the proposal of Christ, become a part of the body of Christ, the, the bride of, of Christ. Will you go with this man? That was the question asked of Rebecca, and she said, I will go, I will go. What will your answer be? We plead the glories of our Master's Son. We say He sustained five wounds that you may say, I will go. And by the way, we need to ask ourselves, if we don't go with Him, who will we go with? If we don't go where He takes us, where will we go? Five wounds He sustained on Calvary. Rich wounds yet visible above in glory beautified. We think the wounds are still on display. 
the only man-made thing in heaven. Why do we think that? Because of that verse that said, when John caught a glimpse of heaven, he said, I saw a lamb as if he had been slain. Which one of my Savior's wounds offends you? Which one puts you off? Was it the wounds in the hands? That put you off? How about the wounds in the feet? Did that put you off? How about the gaping spear wound in the side? His suffering for you. His love proven by asphyxiation. Will you trample on that love? Will you spurn that love? Will you go with this man? Will you go with him? He who offers you salvation, paid for by the ransom of his own blood. Amen.